this morning, Luke chapter 6. We are at the very end. Do you need this? Okay, there you go. We're at the end of a series we're doing uh, entitled Prayer 101. And the basic idea of the series is that one of the things, one of the central parts of what prayer does is it tunes us, it shapes us as people to be people who listen to that very voice that says you are forgiven, you are loved, and you are appreciated by your Heavenly Father. And so uh, next week, we're going to be doing some basic like nuts and bolts of prayer. We've talked a lot about the, like, the abstract idea. This is the theory of what prayer is trying to do. And next week, we're going to give you like some, just some basic, here's really some basic ways to start engaging in prayer or or if you're a person of prayer already, to continue that. So next week is going to be really like kind of like a nuts and bolts sermon on prayer. And uh, then the week after that, we're going to start a new series, which is going to be our summer series entitled The God of Moses, coming to you from the book of Exodus, which I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but this morning, Luke chapter 6. Let's pray one more time. God, give us ears to hear your voice. The voice that declares what Christ has done is enough for us, that the debt has been paid, that we have been made clean, that we have been made new, that we have been renewed, that we are your beloved daughters and sons. Help us to learn to say no to all the other voices and yes to that voice. We pray this in your name. Amen. I think I probably told you this story before, but if not, I'm going to tell it again. Anyway, my father-in-law who was a high school football coach, was in the team locker room right before a game a few years ago. And he was giving his best pep talk. I mean, he was giving them the business. He was getting serious, and he was telling everyone on the, on the team, you guys need to be mentally ready. You guys need to get mentally ready. We're going to go play this game. If you want to win, if you want to succeed, you've got to be mentally ready. And this team's starting to get pumped up, as you know, like high school kids do. Hey, everyone, let's get mentally. It's the only message he had to say. He said it over and over again. And the team got all pumped up, and they ran out of the locker room, except one kid. One kid came up to him and said, Coach, I heard your speech. You just tell me who mentally is, and I'll go get him ready. And you go, uh, just, just, he's out there. Go ahead and you do your thing. And so everyone has this question, like, what do you do to get ready to do something? Like, how do you get ready? I was talking to uh, someone not too long ago, and she was writing a book with her husband, the first time she'd ever written anything. And every day after they dropped their kids off at school, they would go to this office, and there's this big glare that came in because of the window. There's a big window right in front of their desk. And they would goof around, they would drink coffee, they would talk. And then, because of the glare, she had to do something to get rid of the glare. And so every day she had this trucker hat, Ashton Kutcher style, that she would put on, and then they would start writing. Like, that thing went on, and it was, this is business time. That's how you get mentally ready. If anyone's seen the movie Gladiator, you know what Russell Crowe's character does. Just before he goes to battle, he reaches down, grabs the dirt, and does that thing with his hands. And like a plethora of high school football players thought it'd be a cool thing for them to do as well, right? That's how you get mentally ready. Everyone has their own thing. If you go to Cleveland to watch the NBA Finals, and there's a gentleman with number 23 in his shirt, before the game, what does he do? He gets a chalk in his hand and does this number, right? I do the same thing every morning before I write my sermons, which is really awkward in my office. But regardless, you have to do something to get yourself focused. Everyone has to do something. In Luke chapter 6, there's a gentleman named Jesus, who a great Catholic thinker and scholar named Henry Nouwen says, this is the threefold pattern of the way of life that Jesus patterns for us that we are to emulate. 
And it has the two action things which we all get, but at the beginning of it is how Nowen says everyone should get mentally ready. Let's read Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he assigned apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James of Alphaeus, Simeon, the one they, Simon, the one they called the Zealot, Judas, son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood in a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number, number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them. And so in this basic passage, you have three things that Jesus does. He's in solitude, he's in community, and he does ministry. Obviously, the end of what Jesus is doing is about healing people, being with those who need help. Jesus is doing ministry. And any sort of spirituality that's just about you consuming without you giving back out will leave you just as spiritually out of shape as if you never consumed anything. All spirituality has always pointed towards you doing something with it. In the Jewish tradition, it's you are blessed to be a blessing. In the Christian tradition, we talk about your cup being full so that you can pour it out for other people. All spirituality, that is anything good, does involve you taking things in, but it's always for you to pour yourselves back out. And obviously for Jesus, it's healing people, casting out demons. And I'm assuming most of you, most of you probably aren't doing that on your day-to-day activities. But that doesn't change the principle that what we are called to do is to do something to contribute. Whether you are parenting, which isn't just raising kids and giving them meals, but you are discipling them from the ground up. Or you are serving in your world and somehow as a teacher or working in your business, you are bringing order to the world. Or it might seem like just a lifeless job, but you are bringing the love and the life of Jesus into it. You are doing something out there. So it always points towards that, but before that, it's community. Jesus picks his 12 followers. Because what we see patterned in the life of Jesus is the very thing we see in the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit living in eternal community. And Jesus patterns that with his life. It's not just him alone, but it's him connecting with 12 around him. Because you can't do any spiritual endeavor on your own. And so it's important to be connected to the people around you. And so it ends, as Jesus sets this precedent, of ministry, of living in community, but it always starts with the same thing. Jesus going out to pray all night. One of the things you see in Luke's gospel is time and time again, prayer is the central piece. At the beginning in Luke chapter 1, in the end of Luke, there's prayer. Prayer seems to book in the entire book. And every time Jesus does something important, whether it's his baptism, his transfiguration, this crazy mystical experience, or him going to the cross, Jesus is always spending time prayer in prayer before those things. It always starts with prayer. All three pieces are important, but if you miss one, everything falls apart. And you've seen that. You've experienced it. How many times have you heard someone say... I just lost myself. Or how many times you've thought, you know, I don't know what was just happening in this season, this day, this phase of my life. It's like I was just completely lost. 
I lost myself. Which is a weird thing because in our day and age, most of us walk around every day with a global positioning system in our pocket known as our phone. And so the one thing which shouldn't almost ever happen, getting lost seems to happen to the most important part of us. Our essence, our spirit, our soul, we lose ourselves. Maybe you've seen this. You know your buddy who's from the suburbs. He's driven a sedan his entire life and the only thing he listens to is Mumford and Son. But he meets the girl. And she's from the country. And so next thing you know, Mr. Suburban Buddy's not listening to Mumford and Stun anymore, but now he's got an F-150, he's walking around in his boots, and he's griping about how the country music on the radio isn't really country music anymore. It's sold out. Like, you go from this guy to that guy, and you go, how did that, how did that happen? And that happens on serious levels, not just innocuous stuff like changing your clothes and the music you listen to. But you get in this pattern of life, and what used to be important to you, what was essential to you, maybe it was your family. And all of a sudden you're so preoccupied at work that one meeting becomes two meetings that causes you to skip all your family activities. The next thing you know, even when you are at home, which is rare and few and far between, you're not even present because you're, you're too focused on what's happening there that you can't be here with those you love the most. And you go, what happened to me? How did I become this person? You lost yourself. Because often what happens is we lose the things, the practices, the habits, the disciplines that make us who we are. Because we are really the fruit of the disciplines, the work that we put in to creating ourselves. I was talking with one of my mentors about a um, mutual friend who was in a real tough spot. And he didn't know how to deal with the pain that he was experiencing. And the only way he could medicate it was through, or the only way he thought he could medicate it was through an adulterous relationship. It seemed to be the only place where things were good in his life when so-and-so was being really nice to him, even though it wasn't his wife. And obviously everything got even worse when that happened. But we're talking about this, and, and my mentor says to me, he says, Luke, I know church planning is not the easiest thing in the world, but don't forget your disciplines. Which seems like a weird thing to say when you're talking about someone having an affair and screwing up their entire life worse than it already was messed up. To go, and Luke, don't forget your spiritual disciplines, but it's, it's right on. Because we ultimately are the habits, the practices, the disciplines that we do. Because our values, the things that we hold to, are the fruit of the disciplines that we ascribe to day in and day out. And when we stop doing those, we lose who we are. That's how we lose ourselves. The guy who has lost himself at work and is no longer the person he used to be, he's really lost the things that made him who he was. He's probably given up on those. Because in a lot of ways, the, the human life is like a, a, a wagon wheel. And so you have these, the outside is, is like the ministry that Jesus did. It's like the wheel, it's the things that you do in the world. It's what everyone sees, and it's what everyone sees you spinning with. Oh, you do this, and you do that, and you have your activity, which is an important part. Inside that, you have the spokes, which are the relationships, the community that you're connected to. The things that connect you to the people around you. We all know this. If you want to know who you are, just think about the five people you spend most of your time with. And I can probably tell you what you're going to look like in five years. Those spokes are important parts. You have the wheel, you have the spokes, and the inside you have the hub. And that's the inner life. That's the inner life we all need to have because that helps shape who we are. That inner life is the hub that holds it all together. And when can you tell the value of the hub? 
when you put pressure on the wheel. If a wheel is just independent of everything, it can just roll around by itself. But once you connect it to an axle and you put some weight on it, if there is no hub, the wheel will collapse. In good times and bad times, when there is pressure, that's when you really need that inner life. Otherwise, you lose yourself. And see, this is the part that becomes different when you're a Jesus person. Because it doesn't matter really who you talk to, who really cares about spirituality. Everyone's going to say meditation is an important part of life. If you want to deal with stress, you have people who are no, have no religious ties at all, but they will say there are virtues in just being silent and meditating for 10 minutes a day. Everyone will tell you that. People who study that will say that is important. But if I can make the Jesus move, what some might call the Christological take on it, there's a difference when you're just meditating and when you pray as a Christian. Because when you pray as a Christian, you hear something you don't hear anywhere else. Here's a quote from Henry Nouwen about what you hear when you pray. He says this, Why is it so important that you are with God and God alone on the mountaintop? It's important because it's the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you the beloved. To pray is to listen to the one who calls you my beloved daughter, son, child. To pray is to let that voice speak to the center of your being. To your guts and let that voice resound in your whole being. Who am I? I am the beloved. What prayer does is it gives you a voice that says who you are. Because let me be honest, you are surrounded by so many voices that try to speak into your existence and tell you who you are. And they're probably not voices you want to hear. They're voices that say you are what you do and what you accomplish. Your grades, your position, your paycheck, the the size of your house, the type of car you drive, those things tell you who you are. Or maybe it's the comparison game when you see people around you. Maybe it's social media and you start comparing yourself to what they project out there and you start to say, well, maybe that's really what I should be. Or maybe the voice comes from someone who no matter how much you try to convince yourself that what they say doesn't matter, No matter how many times you try to say, I know this person says something about you and it doesn't matter, but somehow you still care about what they say about you and you can't push them out of your heart. You still listen. We are constantly surrounded by voices that try to determine who we are and what matters. And sometimes you need to hear a louder voice. I don't know if I've ever told you about the time that I baptized Jesus, um, but I did. Uh, years ago, at my little country church that I was preaching at when I was in college, there's this guy, and his name was Jesus. He, he, he said it was pronounced Jesus, but I was like, I'm a preacher. I know this word. It's Jesus. And so when I baptized this kid, Jesus, or Jesus, as he said it was, uh, he told me afterwards, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, as I was being lowered into the water, he said, I heard a voice saying, no, no, no. And he goes under the water. And he comes back up and he said, I heard a different voice saying, yes, yes, yes. And I don't pretend to understand mystical experiences and how it happens and what's going on. But what I do know is that same thing happens every time you pray. When you pray, there is a voice that says, no, you are not determined by what you accomplish. Your value isn't based on your paycheck. Your value isn't based on what you have or what you don't have. 
What I know is what happens in prayer is there is a voice that says, no. I know there are all these voices saying you're not a good enough parent, that you don't do enough for your kids, that you don't have enough patience, and you don't provide them the right things. There's a voice that says, no, that's not true. And there's a voice that says, no, I know there are a lot of things that say this is the image you need to live up to, and the voice says no to that. And there's also a voice that says yes. Yes, you matter because who you are created by. Just like if you go to some crazy store in Beverly Hills and they tell you that some t-shirt costs $500 and you go, why would this t-shirt cost $500? It looks just like a Hanes t-shirt. Why is it $500? And someone at the counter says, well, you, you don't know who made this shirt. Well, while that is ridiculous pricing on a shirt, it is the basic principle of Christianity is that you, va- you are valued because the one who created you is significant. And you say yes to that. And you say yes to the voice that says, whatever you do in your attempts to be as patient as you can and loving as you can to your family, somehow God works in your deficit to make it enough. And there is a voice that says, yes, there is an image that matters. And it's not an image on a screen or an image on a magazine. It's the image of God inside of you. The voice of God is what tells you no to all the things you don't need to hear and yes to the simple message that you are loved just as you are. And that's why it's so important to be a person of prayer. Because when you really need to hear that is when there is pressure on the wheel. Because it doesn't matter if that pressure is from success or failure, you will be tempted to listen to either side. And it doesn't matter if it is an old wagon wheel or it is some Chrome 22. Both of those will collapse if there is no hub on the inside. And that is what prayer does. Prayer tells you who you are. And that's why it's so important to create this routine. If we can go back to uh, that text from Luke chapter 6. In, uh, in Luke 6, you start off the story, and it gets to the end where Jesus is casting out demons and healing sick people. But it begins by just saying, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And there's nothing spectacular about it. It's just one of those days. This is just what Jesus does. And sure, he's casting out demons and healing sick people, but to Jesus, it's just a normal day. And sure, before the big times in Jesus' life, he prays, but also just in the normal times. This is just his routine. It's just his normal habit. Now, one of the weirdest things to me about, about sports is so many times you hear coaches or people who are experts on the sport talk about watching your feet. So just watch the feet of someone. And it makes no sense, like in the sport of boxing, they always talk about footwork. Footwork is so important in boxing. Now, I am no boxing expert. I've never studied. I don't know anything about it. I have this weird phobia of like, I don't like to be punched in the face, so boxing never seemed appealing to me. But they always talk about boxing, the importance of footwork, which is weird because boxing is a sport of the sport of punching, which you use with your hands. But for some reason, there's a great deal of emphasis just on your feet, because where your feet go, the rest of you follows. I was a pole vaulter, a very mediocre pole vaulter years ago. And when you pole vault, you take 16 steps and you jump on this fiberglass pole and you go in the air, theoretically really high, more realistically somewhat low. And you do this, but any good coach can tell you exactly how good your jump is going to be after your fourth step. You might take 16 more of them, or you might take 12 more of them. You might take 16 total, but they can tell you if at your fourth step, you're two inches too far, that you'll be underneath and you won't have a good jump. And you go, why does that make any sense? Because people know where your foundation is, the rest of you will follow. 
If your foundation is good, the rest of you will be good. But if you don't have a good foundation, if you don't have good practices and habits, the rest of you will crumble. There's a story from the book of Daniel in which Daniel has this dream and there's this, this big statue and it's made of these ornate materials and it's really strong and impressive and gold and iron and all this stuff. But then you get down to the feet and it's just feet of clay. And the feet of clay is eventually what crumble and causes the whole statue to collapse. Because if your feet are bad, if your foundation isn't good, if your habits aren't right, then everything else will tumble. Jesus prayed just on a normal day. This isn't some fancy. This is his routine. And what happens is that if you don't create these habits, then you will never live in awareness of God in the presence around you. My friend Richard tells a story about a Jesuit priest who had this guy come up to him and said, I don't have any awareness of the presence of God. I have no awareness of God at all, and I don't even think God exists. And so the Jesuit priest says, this is what I want you to do. For six months, I want you to spend 30 minutes every day praying and come back and talk to me. Six months later, he comes back to him. He asks him the question, so can you experience the presence of God? Do you feel God around you? And he says, yes. Why? Because he changed his footwork. He changed his foundation. He created a routine, a practice that made him open to God around him. And it's not that easy. It's not like you just say, I'm going to sit down and pray this morning. All of a sudden, I'm going to be aware of God. It's not like I'm just going to say, I'm going to start praying today and I'm going to pray for five minutes, which is a great place to start. And all of a sudden, I'm going to hear the voice of God and I'm going to know I'm always beloved. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, there was a, um, a Hindu guy who went to his master and said, how do we become enlightened? How do you become enlightened? And the master said to him, he said, you can no longer, you can no more make enlightenment happen than you can make the sun rise. You can't make enlightenment happen any more than you make the sun rise. And so the, the disciple asks his master, he says, well, then why do we even pray? And the master looks at him and says, so that you will be awake when the sun does rise. You create, create habits, you create footwork, you create this this, this practice and this discipline so that you can live in awareness of who God is so that you don't miss the sun when it rises. How many of us make the colossal failures and the colossal mistakes because we are living without an awareness of God, without a sense that we are loved by God and we are making decisions out of deficit and we're trying to make up for things that inside of ourselves we need to get fixed first before we try to find them out there, Right? We know you do not go to the grocery store when. When you're hungry, it makes terrible decisions. You don't go watch like a romantic comedy when you're mad at your husband. Terrible idea. Like you shouldn't do those things. You don't watch The Bachelor when your husband's being a jerk at home. Write that down, Lindsay. You don't do those things. I'm kidding. I'm never a jerk. Um, But the same thing is true with our lives. Often the colossal mistakes we make are because we are coming out of a place in our lives in which we do not know that we are beloved by God and that we are accepted as his daughters and sons. And that's why your footwork has to be right. That's why you have to create that hub so that you can live out of that, whether it's good times or bad times, so that you know one simple thing that you were loved by God. One of the habits that we do, one of the practices that we uh, partake in every week at Venture is going around these tables because we hear that exact same thing. And whether it's in the waters of baptism, in the sacrament of baptism, where we say no 
to all the other voices and yes to Jesus, whether it's prayer where we try to hear the voice that says you are God's beloved, or whether we go around these tables and we are reminded that we are God's sons and daughters and we partake in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are all hearing that same voice. And so in a second, I'm going to invite us to make our way to these tables. But before that, let's pray one more time. God, I pray that you would give us an awareness of you around us. And God, help us to know that we are your beloved daughters and sons. And we thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us that remind us of who we are, that we are loved by you. And for those of us who go to the table this morning feeling like we are just guilty and that we are too impure to come into your presence, let us hear the voice that says, it's forgiven, your debt has been paid. And for those of us who go to the table this morning, feeling like our image is determined by being compared to what's around us, let us partake in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and become a new person. Be people who live out of our identity as being created in your image. And as we go to these tables, let us hear the voice that simply says, we are your beloved. We pray this in your name.